grace. What is it that makes grace so amazing? Well, we'll take a look at the amazing grace handed out to us in Christ by God. That's today on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Join us. I've always loved the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. But really, what is wrapped up in grace? As we'll see today, it's more than just God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's amazing riches at Christ's expense. And wrapped up into those riches, a promise of glory. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Welcome to our program today. We're back in Titus chapter 2, taking a look at this amazing grace handed out to us in Christ. Won't you join us? We're taking a look at the glory of our prospect, the promise of it, and what it costs. Here's Pastor Steve. 2 Corinthians 9. Look at what Paul writes here. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. It enables the believer to cope, but it also teaches the redeemed heart to give generously. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you're a farmer, you know exactly what that's talking about. Verse 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. And God is able to make what? All grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You want to abound? You have to do it through the grace of God. It also, what you might say, colors our conversation. It colors our conversation. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, verse 6. Colossians 4, verse 6. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, verse 5, making the best use of time. And then it says this, believer, let your speech always be what? Gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The grace of God also colors our conversation. Back in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 16, it even tells us that it puts a song in our heart. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving." In your hearts to God. Always cracks me up when I run into Christians. I don't, I don't like to sing. I don't sing. You know what? You're being disobedient to the word of God. I don't care if you can sing on key or not. That's not the point. The idea is, is that we, we make a noise. Some make nice noises. Some people make not so nice noises. That's irrelevant. But we do it as unto the Lord. He puts a song in your heart. Hebrews 12, 28 also tells us that he gives us the ability to serve God. The grace gives us the ability to serve God. Hebrews 12, 
verse 28. It says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God, what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship is, is not just coming and sitting down and hearing a sermon and, and putting something in the plate and singing some songs. That's not what worship is. Worship is, is really giving to God, giving God everything. When we come into this place Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, hopefully that you don't just drag yourself through the door. Having been up till 4.30 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning going, well, man, I just hope they sing some good music today because I am just bushed. And you plop yourself down and say, okay, let's, let's worship. That, God's not going to honor that. That'd be like showing up at your job after you've been awake for 48 hours partying all weekend, saying, I'm here Monday morning, ready to go to work. What's your boss going to think? Your boss is going to think, you know what? You don't care too much about your job, pal. You didn't come prepared for the meeting. You don't have any energy. You're not thinking straight. You, You haven't done any preparation for the work week. Why should you work here? God asks the same question sometimes, I think, when believers drag themselves through the doors of a church. And plop themselves down saying, okay, God, hit me with your best shot. <laughs> I just need something to get me through next, Friday, next Sunday. We should be preparing our hearts. You know, there, there's a reason why God gives us a day of rest. Part of that should be preparing our heart as we gather together in worship. God's grace also teaches the believer to turn his back on the desires of the world. James 4.4 4. James 4.4 clearly says that, that that we should turn our desires, turn our back on the desires of the world. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that what? Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The grace of God allows us to turn our back on the desires of the world. We don't want to be a friend of the world anymore. He transforms us. He changes us into something new. Someone wrote, This world is the devil's lair for sinners, and it's his lure for saints. It's a lair for sinners, but it's also a lure for saints. I mean, when you stop and you think what this world did, they murdered our beloved Savior. It's persecuted godly people down through the ages ever since the days of Cain. It can't rob us as believers of our salvation, but I'll tell you what it can do. It can definitely rob a believer of their assurance. It can definitely rob a believer of his peace, of his joy. The world can also rob him of his testimony and even his reward if he gives in to the desires of sin. Those are the things we're to turn our backs on. We're to repudiate ungodliness, unholiness. What does it teach us that we should reproduce? Then it kind of, it turns to the positive here in Colossians, in chapter uh, 2, verse 12. It says, first of all, this saving grace teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We should produce gravity. That word soberly speaks of the gravity of, of the situation. When someone's not sober, what are they? They're giddy. They're, they're goofy. They're just, they're not paying attention. They're, they don't care about anything. But when someone is sober, they're serious. 
A call to live soberly is a call to exercise self-control. You see that over and over and over in Titus. And the exercise of self-control is over those passions, those desires that are just in our hearts. The word righteously here speaks of a call to goodness. The Bible says that we're to do what is right at all times, at all costs. On all counts, doesn't matter. We are to do what we promise to do. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they keep on saying, no man, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> you kind of wonder, so you're not telling me the truth all the other times you talk to me? You got a problem here? We're to do what we promise to do, even when it becomes tiresome or inconvenient. Because you know what? It's the right thing. It's the proper thing that we keep our word We're to take a stand for what is right, whether it's in our home, in our church, in the world, it doesn't matter. And God's grace teaches us to do that. The word godly there speaks of a call to godliness. We're to be like Jesus. We're called Christians, Christ followers in this present world, it says. That word world refers to the ages. In this present age. The one that's organized by men as opposed to the one that's overseen by God. The world in which all the ungodly exercise their lust and their lostness and their lawlessness. All those things are exercised in this world. But he says, you know what? You're not like that. You're, to call, you're called to be godly. The Old Testament, it gives us certain types of the, the world in a sense. And they include Egypt. Assyria, Babylon. They're a picture of the world. The world with all its pride and all its prejudices, all its pleasures. All those things challenge. They come to challenge our Christian faith. When we try to do this, when we try to live soberly, when we try to live righteously, when we try to live godly, it doesn't just go unchecked. I don't know about you, but that's not an easy thing to do. When Paul called this present world here, it stands in in stark contrast to the world to come. The world to come is the goal for all of us as believers. It's the home of Christians. In this world, what are we called? We're called pilgrims, right? We're called strangers, just as Abraham was. We're not here to, to set up house. We're just passing through. We need to remind ourselves of that. Well, look also here, it continues in verse 13, and he talks about God's promised glory. God's promised glory. Verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a prophetic aspect here to even the grace of God. Look at the glory of our prospect. See, when when Paul wrote in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, what is he referring to? He's referring to the first incarnation, the first advent of Christ. When Jesus came, God's grace was made incarnate in human flesh. We're about ready to celebrate that in several weeks when we have Christmas. We celebrate God coming down and taking on a body. The incarnate deity. 
John 1.14 says, We beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, grace, truth, and glory were all evident in what Jesus was. That's just who He was. It was also evident in what He said, and it was also evident even in what He did. When Paul wrote Titus 2.13, however, he was directing our attention from the birth of Christ, to the second advent of Christ. He was saying, you know what? You should be looking future for that blessed hope, for that glorious appearing. Now, this could either refer to two future comings of the Lord Jesus, his coming in the clouds, the rapture, or, and his, his coming on earth. Some commentators say, yeah, one refers to the rapture, one refers to his coming on earth. First, he will come to receive us to himself, the Bible says. We'll be caught up out of here in a twinkling. We'll just be gone. Our clothes will be left. We'll just have our glorified bodies, and we're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. When that happens on earth here, there's going to be a time of tribulation. Seven years. At the end of that time, the Lord will return with his church from heaven and set up here on earth for a thousand year rule and reign of Christ. So first he'll come to take us out of here, but then he's going to come back with us. The second coming of Christ. We look forward to both of those events. I don't think really, I don't see the evidence here where Paul is necessarily discerning which ones he's talking about. He's just saying, hey, he's coming back. (laughs) It's the blessed hope of our, our Christianity. The idea that God is coming back for us. It's a guarantee that we will escape a time here on earth when incredible wrath of God is going to be poured out on this rebellious planet. We looked at that when we went through Matthew 24. The word translated there, looking for, in verse 13, waiting for, looking for, it has the idea that you're expecting something. Have you ever had relatives coming over for dinner or, or maybe they're, they're coming on a plane and you go to the meet, meet them at the airport or whatever and you're, you're looking, you know, they're coming out of the security. Oh, is that them? Is that them? You know, and finally you see them and you're, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and you do all the whole thing. Take their luggage, you do all that stuff, you know. That's the idea, that you're looking forward to them coming. We should be looking forward to that time when Christ returns. Mark uses the term here describing the hope that filled the heart of Joseph of Arimathea. It says in Mark 15, 43, he waited for the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of other passages, we're not going to go into them, that deal with that blessed hope, that looking forward to that. But I think we also need to be reminded not only of the glory of this prospect, but the greatness of it. Look at what it says. The one who appears in power and glory in verse 13 is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's speaking of who this is. The greatness of it. Isaiah 53, 3 says, The world does not think of him as great. He is still despised. He's still rejected, it says, by all men. His lovely name is used as a curse word. It's linked to some of the the foulest words that can be dredged up. 
from the, the sewer of the minds of the unregenerate. But to us who believe, He is the great God and our Savior. The names Jesus Christ are sweet music to our souls. Both of those phrases refer to the same individual, by the way. It's not talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Basically, a good translation would be, He who is the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Puts them together. And that's important theologically for other reasons. But that's a good proof text to prove that Jesus Christ is literally God. Well, look at what he did under the, the aspect here, who it was. Jesus Christ, we read, it says, gave himself for us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us. The one who is coming back has been here before. 2,000 some years ago, he stepped out in eternity, descended from glory to arrive as a babe in Bethlehem. And he didn't come to live, he came to die. Something that was set up before even the foundation of the world. This wasn't a last, last ditch effort by God to, to save mankind. No, this was, this was in the mind of God in all eternity. And the fact that he came and he died for us, one whom the angels worshipped, the creator of the universe, he came to die for us? He came to give himself for Adam's helpless race. Even though we were still in our sins, he gave himself for us. That's why when we sang that song this morning, come just as you are to worship. See, Christianity is one of the only religions that you personally cannot clean yourself up to come to God. He has to do it for you. And you have to come to him just as you are. All the sin, all the muck, all the whatever else is in your life, and you just present it to God, and you say, God, you know what? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. Well, what was it? It's the cost of salvation. It says that he might redeem us. The salvation that he bought for us was costly. The word translated redeem there reminds us of a cost because it, it literally means to set free by paying a ransom. To set free by paying a ransom. The Lord Jesus came down into the slave market of the world and he purchased us at an infinite cost. If you look over at First Peter 1 verses 18 and 19, it reminds us of the enormous price that was paid for our salvation. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things. Things like, eh, let's say, silver, gold. All those things are going to be corrupted. No, we were purchased with what? But with the precious blood of Christ. See, redemption is a very costly business, beloved. That's why in Ruth 2, 1 the kingsman redeemer Boaz is first introduced in Scripture as a mighty man of what? Wealth. Wealth. And that's why both in the parable of the hidden treasure and even in the parable of the pearl, the Lord Jesus is depicted as paying an enormous price to secure the prize. A redeemed Israel in one story, a redeemed church in the other. 
That points us to the completeness of our salvation. Look at what it says back Titus 2.14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. See, we're redeemed from all lawlessness, all iniquity. When the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of our iniquity, iniquity was laid on him. That's why... The atonement of Christ was not a potential atonement. It had to be a particular atonement. And we talked about that for several weeks. All of our sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. There's some two dozen words in the Greek New Testament to describe sin. And they all kind of talk about the different twists and different spins that our fallen human nature has put on sin. The word here translated iniquity in 2.14 here, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness or iniquity, it means just that. It denotes the, the wickedness in general, basically unrighteousness of the human race. It's sometimes translated transgression. Sin is not just something we do wrong, beloved. Sin is a violation, it's a transgression against God's law. Now, our society wants us to think, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we, we can't be so close-minded as to call sin, sin. But that's what God does. Sin is a transgression of God's law. Well, why, why it was? Look at what it says. Why did this happen? To purify us, first of all. To purify for himself, that points us that, you know what, we're a, a possession. The Savior had a threefold objection here. Uh, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ took our place on Calvary to purify us. That word means to cleanse. Uh, it brings the, the, in, into the, the reader's mind a goldsmith or a silversmith who was removing those impurities from that precious metal. Or maybe a woman who was removing stains out of a piece of cloth. See, the effectiveness of God's salvation in accomplishing this purification that we're talking about is evident from Peter's words. In Acts 15, verses 8 and 9, he says this at the Jerusalem Council conference there. He says, God, who knows the hearts, bear witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, meaning the, the Jews and the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by what? Faith. He purified their hearts. God has come to make us clean, clean enough to be with him, to sit where he sits in his holy presence. But also, secondly here, he wanted to possess us, a particular, peculiar people, he says, a people who are his own a people for himself. This word here, some translations, is re translated as peculiar. It only occurs here. It refers to God's people as an acquisition, his own possession. They're especially and particularly his. That's why the atonement was a particular atonement, not a general atonement. We are a people of his own and set apart 
from all others. That's what the Bible says. That's what the church is. The church is Christ's unique possession. And then thirdly, to perfect us. It says zealous for good works. Paul used the word zealot here to describe his devotion to Jewish tradition before his conversion in chapter 1, verse 14 of Galatians. The idea is we should just be sold out for doing the good works that God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. That's what we're called to do. Paul just sums this up here to Titus in his command at the end there. It says there, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he's to, to act in a Christ-like manner. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible-teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-366. 9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.